In the previous episode, we looked at how Shakespeare created one of the most complex and alive characters in all of literature. Part of what gives Hamlet life are the contradictions and paradoxes of his character. And these contradictions are mirrored in the different registers of speech that he uses, which reflect different ways of thinking and feeling. In this episode, we'll break down some of Hamlet's most important speeches to see how Shakespeare creates this sense of a living mind at work. We'll also explore how Shakespeare's plays are living works of art, open to new perspectives and interpretations. In this episode, we'll hear from both our featured scholars, Paulina Cuse and Simon Palfrey, who are both professors of English at the University of Oxford. For our first speech, you'll hear how they find different meanings in the same words. As you listen to their discussion and to the actor's recitation, you can think about how the speech strikes you. This speech comes from Claudius, Hamlet's chief antagonist in the play. Hamlet refers to himself and Claudius as mighty opposites. But Claudius is fascinating in that he not only sharply contrasts with Hamlet, but also mirrors him in certain ways. We'll hear Claudius's speech from Act One, the first time he appears on stage. His brother, King Hamlet, is dead, and Claudius is addressing the Danish court as the new king. Though yet of Hamlet, our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and that it us befitted to bear our hearts in grief and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe. Yet so far hath discretion fought with nature that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. Therefore, our sometimes sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we, as twere with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye, with mirth in funeral and with dirge in marriage, in equal scale, weighing delight and dole, taken to wife. Nor have we here in Bard your better wisdoms, which have freely gone with this affair along for all our thanks. Now follows that you know, young Fortinbras, holding a weak disposal of our worth, or thinking by our late dear brother's death, our state to be disjoint and out of frame, Colleaguid with this dream of his advantage, he hath not failed to pester us with message, importing the surrender of those lands lost by his father with all bonds of law to our most valiant brother. So much for him. Now for ourselves and for this time of meeting. Thus much the business is. We have here writ to Norway, uncle of young Fortinbras, who, impotent and bedrid, scarcely hears of this his nephew's purpose to suppress his further gate herein, in that the levies, 
The lists and full proportions are all made out of his subject, and we here dispatch you, good Cornelius, and you, Voltamand, for bearers of this greeting to old Norway, giving to you no further personal power to business with the king more than the scope of these dilated articles allow. Claudius is is a, a really, really interesting character, and he's a sort of a consummate politician. And in a way, he just wants to get on with his government, but he's he's racked by guilt, and he cannot escape that guilt. Um, and it's 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 interesting the way he's written. He he has some of the he has a couple of the great, I think, really the, the greatest speeches in the play. And I think the the one where he talks about there is no shuffling there. That one when he's just recognizing the impossibility of. Uh, uh, fooling heaven. It's fantastic. Claudius gives the speech about fooling heaven just after Hamlet has reenacted Claudius's murder of his brother as he's struggling to repent for that murder. It's the only soliloquy in the play from a character other than Hamlet, and it reveals interesting similarities between them an acute self consciousness and a sense in each man that he can only be himself when he's alone. In this scene, however, Claudius is not alone, but addressing the full Danish court. We can interpret the form of his address in different ways. So we have the speech of Claudius. And this is the first time Claudius speaks, speaks to his court, and this is the first time we, the audience, encounter him. He uses the royal we, our brother's death not my brother's death. So he's very clearly the king. He is in charge here. But this particular speech is um, his first long uh, speech in public. And it's a classic speech because it shows that mix of, of public rhetorical mastery with a kind of guilty haste or something. So the, the crucial thing to look at here is the, the mixture of speaking on his behalf and on the kingdom's behalf. And so the, 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 in a way, the most decisive thing is the pronouns, us, our, ourselves. Um, he's talking with a royal plural, our whole kingdom, um, but at the same time, he's, he's talking about the collective in one brow of woe. That we, that we, with wiser sorrow, think on him together with the remembrance of ourselves. And so he's purporting to speak for everybody, but you can feel the strain in what he says, because all the time there's, there, there's a kind of unresolved conflict, there's unresolved uncertainty as to whether he's speaking about um, his people, his nation, or is he speaking about the people here in his court right now? Is he speaking about himself? as an individual who's lost a brother, or is he speaking of himself as the king? All of these different identities are kind of warring. And there's a sort of, um, whereas in a less, in, in, a, in, in a king who was more assured, you wouldn't have these doubts. The warring identities include, of course, Claudius's identity as a brother who is supposedly in mourning, and as a husband who is celebrating his marriage we find the opposed feelings of dole or grief 
and delight, which are reflected in the oppositions of his language. When he talks about the wisest sorrow, when he talks about a defeated joy, an auspicious and a dropping eye, mirth and funeral, dirge and marriage, delight and dole, those are those sort of um, oxymoronic doublets. These phrases pull in different directions. Defeated joy. They all speak to the sense of death, passing, mourning, and at the same time, joy, marriage, coronation. This oxymoron, this contrast, this paradoxical fusion demonstrates the sort of rhetorical prowess of Claudius. He knows how to turn a phrase. Have we, as twere with a defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye, with mirth in funeral and with dirge in marriage, an equal scale weighing delight and dole, taken to wife? Now, that's a bit, a bit of a joke. In, it's a rhythmic joke which Shakespeare repeats in this speech, which is we get a kind of almost parodic prolixity, a kind of using too many words, um, playing with... Um, proverbial wisdom, playing with paradoxes. Whenever in Shakespeare you get someone speaking in these kind of really blatant symmetrical opposites, you know that he's writing parodically. He's exposing somebody's self-regard or exposing somebody's nervousness. Mirth in funeral, dirge in marriage, delight and dole, auspicious and a dropping eye, all of these kind of these perilous opposites that are being contained. He wants to pretend that there's been an accommodation between opposites, between, say, sister and wife, or between um, himself and his brother, or between him as an individual and the kingdom. He knows all the time that he holds the kingdom by a thread. And the character of Claudius is constantly insecure. He's desperately afraid of Hamlet. He's then afraid of Laertes, he's afraid of the people. He's constantly aware that others may do to him what he has done to his own brother. At the same time that Claudius may fear losing his position, he shows skillful handling of threats to his kingdom, in particular Fortinbras's plan to invade. Claudius, even as he's making military preparations, he decides to solve this problem through diplomacy. He sends an embassy to the court of Norway. And Claudius tells his ambassadors that they cannot exceed their instructions. They are supposed to do only and say only what he tells them to say. He writes to Norway. And he and Norway here stands for the king of Norway, and he wants his ambassadors to intervene. And as we learn later, that embassy is successful. This tells you something about the kind of rulership, kingcraft that Claudius practices. Is Claudius a capable ruler? Is he a shrewd, effective diplomat? Or a weak and nervous politician? Is he a worse king than his brother, or a better one? 
Shakespeare artfully allows for both possibilities in this speech. Next is a soliloquy of Hamlet's from Act Two, which he delivers after watching an actor perform a passionate speech about a son avenging his father's murder. Hamlet chastises himself for not having a similar passion for his own murdered father and attempts to work himself up into an emotional state, concluding with a cry of, Oh, vengeance! Then he begins this speech, one that gives us particular insight into how Shakespeare dramatises the act of thinking. Why, what an ass am I! This is most brave! That I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must like a whore unpack my heart with words and fall a-cursing like a very drab, a stallion, fire-punt, about my brains. <sighs> I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tend him to the quick. If he do blench, I know my course. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape, yea, and perhaps, out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. Particularly in the soliloquies, he's rehearsing possibilities, he's testing himself, he's listening to himself, he's improvising in the moment. Um, and through that process of improvisation, he's moving all the time. And so, whereas the conventional soliloquy, um, the speaker knows from the start of the speaking what um, he's going to say, where he's going to go, and he's, as it were, reporting stuff that's already been thought, in Hamlet, we've got moment by moment thinking. We have the, the, the action of living in the moment. And so the, you arri- the, the point at which the, he arrives is not the point from which, at which he departs. Now, what we have here, so cr- crucial to the soliloquy are short phrases, are short, are short units of speech. Um, and the soliloquy was the first place where Shakespeare, in his writing, really broke up the line. So traditionally, what happens in Shakespeare's scripting as if you have a, uh, say, a, 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 a unit of speech which is, works for half a line, then that half-line speech unit is inviting a response from some other character. That's the, that's the basic convention that the actor observed. So it's, and so the moment you get a half-line or a third of a line, a, a sort of a, say, a three-syllable phrase, it, it creates a pause and it creates not just, the, it creates the expectation or indeed the necessity of some kind of answer. So in other words, um, a, a kind of a midline break 
um, a short, a, a, a half line phrase is a is a, is 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 an intrinsically, implicitly dramatic space. This particular soliloquy is absolutely jam packed with short phrases, half line or third line um, speech units, which are creating this dramatic, dynamic question and answer um, interlocutive. Um, Dynamic, dynamic within Hamlet's own mind. Why? What an ass am I? Again, this is most brave. Now, that, in the first line, we have three different um, uh, speech acts. Why? What an ass am I? This is most brave. No, so he, so what an ass am I? He's immediately insulting himself, but also, but in a, but but in 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 a kind of in in a in a exasperated way, which he's already moving away from. This is most brave. Listen to hear the sarcasm. That I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words and fall a cursing like a very drab. So what we have there is you have a a short line at the start, and then this escalating self-accusation, calling himself twice a whore. A whore and a drab means also a whore. And he's disgusted by his own fluency. The next line's kind of, he's sort of almost spitting out his own, his own fluency. Fire upon it, foe. And it's almost like he's, he's, he's almost kind of viscerally, getting rid of his own um, uh, beautiful or authoritative language about my brains. Now, he's ha having got rid of himself, got rid of this kind of strain of false talking, he starts again. Hum just means hum. He's just thinking, thinking, thinking. I have heard a notice. So immediately the register shifts, the rhythm shifts. I have heard. And the line stops with that, with that word heard. What has he heard? That brief pause at the end of the line, we wait for it. That guilty creatures sitting at a play have, by the very cunning of the scene, been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. The rhythms are completely different. They're much more, they're much more measured and thoughtful and slowly building than the first part of the speech. But at the same time, you can see him warming up all over again. Again, very characteristic of Hamlet is that he that he's he's he has more rhythmic changes than any other character in the sense that he 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 moves from sort of cold to heat to expostulations to interruptions, self-interruptions, self-contradictions, moves in again into into longer kind of periods. I mean, if if he translated Hamlet into music, it would be an extraordinarily furious, like Stravinsky or something, it'd be extraordinarily furious. Um Kind of, or rap. I sometimes think Hamlet's like a rapper, you know, uh, you know, Kendrick Lamar or something. Bang, bang, bang. He's so quick, um, breaking up, interrupting himself. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. And he stops midline. A midline stop signifies a more pregnant stop. And it's a stop no longer in, in, this, in, in this stage of Shakespeare's career. It doesn't always mean that another character will enter, but it does mean that the character is going to speaker is going to switch from one 
thought strain, one kind of um, one kind of progress of thought into another. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before my uncle. A simple sentence, and again a midline stop. Pause. I'll observe his looks. Stop. I'll tent him to the quick. Stop. If he do blench, stop. I know my course. Stop. Very, very simple way. It, it's performing the old soliloquy function of telling the audience what's going to happen. But much more importantly, we have the birth of an idea in Helmut's mind. He ends the, the speech, I'll have grounds more relative than this. In other words, don't take me for a fool. And so he, 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 he regenerates himself. He almost rebirths himself in the speech. And we get the, that classic pride of Hamlet, the sense in which he is going to be master of the situation, the plays the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king and ends with a sort of triumphant rhyme. Um, the, 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 the number of shifts, the number of kind of vocal and rhythmic and elocutionary shifts in the speech. In many ways, a very simple speech by Hamlet's standards. Even so, it shows you a mind which is constantly hatching, 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 and then reflecting upon that, rehearsing the idea, thinking about it. And it's kind of mini drama in its own right. The next speech is another soliloquy of Hamlet's. In the 1604-5 text, it occurs in Act 3, just after Polonius and Claudius decide to stage an encounter between Hamlet and Ophelia. With Claudius and Polonius concealed somewhere on stage, Hamlet gives a speech that famously ponders universal human questions, while also revealing his own unique obsessions. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them, to die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, <laughs> it is a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely? The pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life but that the dread of something after death? The undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is cyclid o'er with the pale cast of thought. 
and enterprises of great pitch and moment, with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. To be or not to be soliloquy is the most celebrated soliloquy in, in all of drama without question, the, the best known. But before we even get to thinking about what it means, we have to think about what it is and, and what kind of um, speech act it is, because there are these kind of curious questions about the speech. Is this a soliloquy? Now, a soliloquy, or, or what is a soliloquy? Now, a soliloquy supposedly is when a character is alone on the stage talking to him or herself. But here, in this case, the character is not alone on the stage. The character is, there are other characters present on the stage with him. And so there's a really fundamental question here about what kind of speech this is and, by the, and, and who Hamlet is speaking to, what Hamlet knows or doesn't know, um, and what we in the audience know or don't know. Does Hamlet know that Polonius and Claudius are there or not? Does he find, does he realise that they're there at a certain point? And there are just a, a few obvious points about the, 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 the speech. The to, be, to be or not to be, that is the question. It goes to the heart of the, of the play. Of the, it's a play which is all about the question, um, all about the, the idea of a question. Um, it's a play in which the question is not just to live or not to live, it's to exist or not to exist. It's, 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 it's a play which is all about the question whether something is or is not. The to be or not to be speech is clearly about the question of why we live. What he most fervently wishes for in this speech is an end to consciousness. Um, he wants he wants death to be oblivion, to die, to sleep, to sleep. And you can feel with the rhythms there this intense longing for cessation, for an end, for quiet. Hamlet is the character who's at who's 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 defined by this sleepless this this absolute sleeplessness, restlessness, a mind that never stops. Um, pain that never abates. He can't stop thinking, and he just longs for that. He longs for rest, and he gets there. These 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 repetitions: to die, to sleep, no more. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. And immediately with that, he, as it were, wakes up. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. And he stops. The pause is halfway through the line. Time enough for a silence and a recognition that there is no rest in death because it will still be cursed by consciousness, by the consciousness which is defined by endless, unanswerable questions and by endless inescapable memory the thing which completely haunts hamlet there's the rub and you remember or is a um his attitude to death epitomizes the way in which this is a play which is 
in many ways all about the question of knowledge, the question of whether we can have knowledge and whether we can act upon our knowledge. Now, Hamlet, among many other things, is the, as it were, the kind of classic humanist character and the character who's, you know, by, by a, a, a sort of humanist paragon. And such a paragon should be defined by virtue. And his virtue is defined by the ability to think and then to act upon his thought. Okay, so the virtue. But look at this. He says, who would all this stuff, who would all of this kind of stuff, these ter- this boring, miserable, unjust um, things uh, bear, except the dread of something after death puzzles the will. That doesn't mean simply makes us think what's going on, leaves us kind of puzzled or incredulous. It means that the will, the ability to act, is compromised. Conscience makes cowards of us all, and thus the native view of resolution is sickly dull with a pale cast of thought. Now, notice again the, the, the kind of distinctive nausea of Hamlet there. The, the native view of resolution is sickly dull with a pale cast of thought. And cast there doesn't just mean kind of the, the type of thought. A cast is a vomit. The, he's imagining that, that thinking is a great big vomit, which is sick over resolution. Um, and, and, you know, he's, he's, you're kind of nauseated by this. And, of course, when you're sick, you can't act. And enterprise is a great pitch and moment. Again, pitch brings in, again, this pitch meaning height and importance, but also a pitch is another vomit. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. And now action is the crucial thing. So action isn't simply, it doesn't simply mean killing the king. Action, again, is virtuous because action is defined by reason, rationality, decision, by, a, by an individual in control of their movements compared to passion. And so this, this, this great soliloquy is, is fundamentally all about these questions of the ability to understand and to act on that understanding and what we do when that understanding is impossible or compromised or leads us down the track merely of, of this kind of circularity. So we, we think we understand, and then the more we understand, the more we realise we just keep repeating the trap that we're already in. This speech comes from Act 3. Gertrude has summoned Hamlet to her bedchamber to question him about his wild and seemingly mad behaviour. Hamlet takes the opportunity to berate her for marrying Claudius and, it seems, for having sexual desire. Here is your husband, like a mildewed ear, blasting his wholesome brother. Have you eyes? Could you on this fair mountain leave to feed and batten on this moor? Have you eyes? You cannot call it love, for at your age, the heyday and the blood is tame. It's humble and waits upon the judgment. And what judgment would step from this to this? Sense, sure you have. Else could you not have motion, but sure that sense is apoplexed. For madness would not err, nor sense to ecstasy was ne'er so thralled, but it reserved some quantity of choice to serve in such a difference what devil wast. 
that thus hath cousined you a hoodman blind, eyes without feeling, feeling without sight, ears without hands or eyes, smelling sounds all, all but a sickly part of one true sense, could not so mope, O oh, shame! Where is thy blush? Rebellious hell! If thou canst mutin in a matron's bones, to flaming youth let virtue be as wax and melt in her own fire. Proclaim no shame when the compulsive ardour gives the charge, since frost itself hath actively doth burn and reason panders will. O oh, Hamlet, speak no more. Here is Hamlet talking to his mother and upbraiding her for remarrying, for marrying Claudius. In most productions, there are various props being used. Either we see the portraits of old Hamlet and Claudius hanging on the wall, or there are miniatures. I'm not sure that such a prop is necessary. In many ways, the scene would be more effective if there isn't a physical representation of the two brothers. Because if there isn't one, then there is a better scope for imagining that Claudius and old Hamlet are not actually as different from one another as Hamlet is implying that they are. What the speech is, is a deeply angry, misogynistic, offensive harangue leveled by a young, youngish man against his mother. So he's simultaneously accusing his mother of a lack of judgment and some kind of unruly, uncontrolled, depraved passion, which is immoral, which she absolutely should not have. She descends from a husband who is good and handsome in every respect to someone who is depraved, lesser. Hamlet accuses her essentially of being blind, of lacking sense of being rotten to the core. He says that something hellish is raising a rebellion in the bones of an older woman who should be respectable. It's shameful for her to, to feel sexual desire. And Gertrude begs him to speak no more. It's an extraordinarily powerful scene. And I'm not sure that we often appreciate how powerful and how outrageous it is. And it is certainly not the case that no older women got remarried. Even queens when widowed, could remarry. 
and sometimes did. It's just bringing it to the fore and couching it in the imagery which is related to virtue, to sin, to fire, to hell, to frost. Fire is so prominent here. There is an implication that sexual desire in a female, especially an older female, is directly related to the fires of hell. It's evil. And it's to be condemned. Another striking feature of this speech is that Hamlet is preoccupied with condemning his mother for her sexual desire when he has just accused her of another crime that we would expect to be much more serious. A few minutes earlier, when Hamlet killed Polonius, Gertrude cries, Oh, what a rash and bloody deed is this! And Hamlet replies, Almost as bad, good mother, as kill a king and marry with his brother. A line which suggests that Hamlet suspects Gertrude was involved in her husband's murder. The question of, of um, what happened to old Hamlet is, is, of course, immediately there. And, and it gets more or less answered by the ghost. But something that's never answered in the play is the guilt or otherwise of his queen, of Gertrude. Um, was she involved um, in the murder of her husband? Did she have knowledge of it? Did she have um, implicit knowledge of it? Did she give her tacit consent to it or not? Um, in the very first edition of the play, in the, in the first quarto, she does. Um, Gertrude, the character of Gertrude, does have knowledge of it and is guilt-ridden um, about her um, uh, complicity in the crime. But in the two main, as it were, versions of Hamlet, the, the, the second quarto and the folio, those, those confessions or those knowledge, acknowledgements vanish. And instead we have this enigmatic um, sort of adjacency to a crime from which she seems to have both suffered and benefited. And we never quite know. And again, the play teases us with all these questions about, and so again, the, I mean, for a play which is in so many ways harping on the question of the, the guilt um, of women, the kind of cupidity of, of women, the kind of sexual rapacity of women, all sort of stuff. Um, if uh, it, to, to, What is Gertrude's crime? Um, has she committed a crime? If she hasn't committed a crime, these sorts of questions. At almost every point in the, the play, there is a, a, a every shift in the play, every sort of plot point in the play is, as it were, quite questionable. Um, one of my favourite points in the play is is when Hamlet says to the ghost, thou comes in such a questionable shape, which is a, which is a perfect um, kind of joke, really, about um, the, the way in which the, the very idea of a question takes on shape, takes on body. Um, what are you? Who are you? Where do you come from? What are you made of? These really, really basic uh, questions um, about what makes um, a, a, a being. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriand. This episode featured performances from the following actors. Andrew Woodall for Claudius, though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death. Dame Harriet Walter for Hamlet. Why, what an ass am I? 
Anton Lesser for Hamlet, to be or not to be. Kelly Hunter for Hamlet and Gertrude, here is your husband. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber's Shakespeare After All. Michael Neal's Hamlet, A Modern Perspective. Emma Smith's This is Shakespeare. We also use the following editions of Hamlet. The 2016 Norton Shakespeare, the 2016 Arden Shakespeare, and the 1985 New Cambridge Shakespeare. For full details on these sources, see our course webpage at shakespeareforall.com. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to himalaya.com slash Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.